could take your Bible and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived in the city of Jerusalem, and yet he was writing a letter to another city hundreds of miles away. We find ourselves in the city of Concord, by God's sovereign, gracious choosing of us to be here as a church. And so Jeremiah found himself in the city of Jerusalem. He is known as the weeping prophet because he so often lamented the condition of his beloved city. It had been ravaged by the Babylonians, but Nebuchadnezzar took many captive. Jeremiah 29 records a letter that he wrote to the exiles in Babylon because many of Jeremiah's fellow citizens, fellow Israelites, had been taken captive and were in exile in this city. The exile, God had said before, would last 70 years. It would not be a full 70 years before the people of God could come and return from the city of Babylon and come back into Jerusalem. And some people in Babylon were saying, it's not going to be that long. This exile is just going to be a short exile. Don't expect a long stay. You're going to be back in Jerusalem very soon. But Jeremiah knew better because Jeremiah believed the word of God. And so Jeremiah was sending a letter to the people of Babylon, his fellow Israelites, fellow Jews in the city of Babylon, and he was saying this, it's actually still going to be 70 years. You're going to be in that city for long time. And so what are they supposed to do in the meantime? Like while they were in a city that is not their own, waiting to return to a city that is their own, what are they supposed to do? That's why Jeremiah was writing to them. So verse 4 of Jeremiah 29, the letter goes like this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, here it is. Here's what they're supposed to do in the meantime. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now what in the world does this have to do with us as 21st century Christians, this letter that was written so long ago? Between us and them, we have an ocean, continents, centuries of time, and a culture. So what in the world does their situation, living way, way back in Babylon, uh, and our situation, what do they have to do with each other? Well, there are some three important parallels I want to point out before getting into the, the bulk of this message so that you'll understand what we have in common with these exiles in the city of Babylon. Now, first of all, one thing that we have in common is that both the exiles in Babylon and we, where we are, are where we are because of God's sovereign placement. You notice that although earlier in this chapter, in verse, if you look at verse 1, it says, this is a letter to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who's responsible for the exile according to this verse? It was the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar. Like he was the guy that came to Jerusalem and took so many people hundreds of miles away into Babylon. 
And yet, when you look further down in verse 4, God says, I have sent them into Babylon. I've sent them into exile. You see what's going on here? Is, is God is saying, kings can redraw political borders, and kings can transport people from one place to the other. But ultimately, God says, I'm in charge. Ultimately, you are where you are because God has put you there. The people that were in exile in Babylon were where they were because God had put them there, not just because Nebuchadnezzar had put them there. And we, here in the 21st century, as Christians living in this city, we are where we are because God has put us there. All the details that have led up to this point in your life are sovereignly arranged by God. There's no mistake. There's no error. We're here where we are because of God's sovereignty, just like they were. That's the first parallel that we see between us and them. But there's a second similarity. And this, again, is just laying the groundwork for, for why we can take this verse and apply it to ourselves. Here's a second similarity. The Jews that were living in Babylon were resident aliens. They didn't actually belong there. And yet that was their temporary home. They weren't in the city of their, of their birth. They had been taken there against their will. They were in a place that was not their permanent home. Every time the sun rose upon Babylon, so rose the hope in the heart of every Jew that one day he or she would return to their beloved city, the city of peace, the city where the temple was, the city of the great Jewish kings. They wanted to be there, but they weren't there. Right? Babylon was not their permanent home. They were living as resident aliens. And this is also true for Christians, even those of us who are living in the 21st century. Because actually the New Testament refers to Christians as exiles. Living in this world, a place that is not our permanent home. We sang some songs about that, didn't we? We sang about a permanent city. We read scripture about the new Jerusalem, a place where God is going to wipe away every tear. There's going to be no more crying. There's going to be no more sorrow. Like That is our permanent place. Peter, in his letter, calls his readers, this is in the New Testament, he calls them elect exiles and sojourners. He calls their journey on this earth as the time of their exile. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, he tells the Philippians, he says, our citizenship, the place where we have our, our earthly citizenship is, is in a city on the earth, but our true citizenship is in heaven, right? So, as Christians, we are resident aliens, we're living in a place that is not our permanent home. So here are the similarities between us and the Jews living in Babylon. Both we and, there and they are where we are because of God's sovereign placement, but also resident aliens living in a place that's not our permanent home. Now, so what are we supposed to do in the meantime? And this is where a lot of people have a hard time. Because on the one hand, the tendency can be Hey, well, I'm just going to adopt all the values and all the priorities of this temporary world as my own. I'm going to prize this world as if all my hope is set in it. Right? That's one tendency that we can fall into. Or on the other hand, I could say, well, who cares about this place that I live? This, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through, so I'm just going to trash it while I'm here. Right? I'm just cruising through this neighborhood. I'm not going to live here, so who cares? Right? There, there are two extremes to this rea uh, extreme reactions that we could have to this idea that we're just resident aliens, resident foreigners. And yet there's a third similarity 
that draws us together. And that is that both the Jews of the Babylonian exile and we as Christians are called to seek the welfare of the city. To seek the peace of the place that God has put us in for now. And there we see another similarity. And that's why this verse, verse, 20, verse 7 of Jeremiah 29, serves as such a fitting summary of the responsibility of a Christian to the place in which he or she finds themselves in. That we are called, as Jeremiah writes, to uh, the Babylonian exiles to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent them into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so because often we find it difficult to think, how do we navigate our lives in a world that is not our permanent home? We can shed so much light on this by looking at the meaning of this verse, particularly this word, welfare. <clears throat> it's the word translated peace in the King James Version. The word, the Hebrew word behind it is the word shalom. So what I want us to do in the time that we have left is a study on this idea, this concept of peace or shalom throughout the Bible. So what we're doing is an expositional study. <clears throat> Typically we do an expositional verse-by-verse -verse study. We're going to do a topical study on this whole idea of peace. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to talk about peace, what it is, where it comes from, and how to seek it. All right? So that's, that's how we're going to divide this, this message. Peace, what it is, <clears throat> where it comes from, and how to seek it. First of all, peace, what it is. Now, when we hear the, hear the word peace, we often think the absence of conflict. Okay, so peace is when everybody gets along. Peace is when my brother finally stops bugging me. Peace is when finally there is this legal settlement and it's solved. But the biblical idea of peace or shalom is much broader and richer than just the absence of conflict. So the word shalom refers not just to the absence of conflict, but to this idea of completeness or wholeness. All right, so something is at peace, something has shalom when all the pieces are together and working right. It's like when a, a complicated machine, all these pieces have to come together to make it work right, and they're all there and they're all working right. That's why in the book of Job, this word shalom is used to refer to the state of Job's tents. Job's tents are in a state of shalom. Why? Because nothing is missing from his flocks. All his animals are there. Not a piece is missing. This idea of shalom means completeness. All the parts are there. So in the Old Testament, people would ask each other things like this. How's your peace? How's your shalom? They're not asking, did you have a fight with your wife this morning? Is there absence of conflict in your life? No, they're asking, is everything in the proper place? Is everything right in your life? Is there this wholeness? Is there this completeness? That's the idea of peace. This idea of shalom. Wholeness. Now our lives are complicated. Our lives contain many pieces. You have siblings. You have parents. You have a spouse. You have children. A boyfriend. A girlfriend. You have a job and other responsibilities. You have hopes. You have dreams. You have a body. Those are all these different parts. And when one part is out of place, when one part is broken, when there's fractures instead of wholeness, 
we can say that you don't have shalom. You don't have peace. This tells us that we need peace in at least three areas. And I'll give these to you. What we're, we're still talking about the question of peace, what it is. But it's the wholeness that we need even with our, within ourself. So that the Bible we see this idea of peace with self. And you can know so easily when you don't have peace with yourself. One word for that is anxiety. There's this there's this dissonance. There's this, this struggle. There's trouble in your life with anxiety. This can happen when your heart is divided by guilt or fear or when you have anger. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 48 verse 2 that there is no peace, shalom to the wicked. When there's, when there's division, when there's problem inside ourselves, you know what it feels like to be anxious. You know what it feels like when there's a part of your life that is just out of place and the whole shalom, the whole wholeness seems to be missing. It's the wholeness that we need with ourselves, but it's also the wholeness that we need with others. I said, you know very easily when you're not experiencing this wholeness because a part of your life seems to be out of place within yourself, but you also know what it's like not to have peace or shalom in your relationships with other people. In the story of Joseph in the, in the book of Genesis, we read that Joseph's brothers were incredibly jealous of him because Joseph's father had given Joseph a coat that signified special honor and favoritism to Joseph. So that's unfairness. That's injustice. And the Bible tells us that Joseph's brothers could not speak peaceably with him. They could not speak to him in shalom. Why? Because there was unfairness. And the unfairness, the injustice, created this division, this lack of wholeness among the brothers. There was this conflict. I wonder, do you have conflict in your life right now? Like, is there some relationship that should be whole? It should be one piece. There should be unity there, and it's cracked, broken, strained in some way. You know that shalom is that wholeness. Peace is that wholeness that we need within ourselves, but it's also the wholeness that we need in our relationships with other people. And that wholeness, that peace can die when there's unfairness or injustice. This is illustrated so easily. If you have two kids, and you take a cookie, you say, you guys want a cookie? And you break that cookie into two parts, but you make one really small and one really big. One part is big and one part is small. You say, okay, here you go. And you give one, the big piece to, the, to one kid and the little piece to another kid. What's going to happen to the piece of that situation? It's going to go away. Why? Because there's injustice. That's, that's how shalom gets broken. When there's injustice, when there's unfairness in a relationship, in a community. You could just expand this on larger and broader scales. What happens on a small level between individuals when the shalom is broken, when there's a strain or injustice in the relationship, happens on the level of states and nations and empires, and it's this lack of peace that marks the world that we live in. You read the newspaper every day and you could just see evidence of the lack of shalom, the lack of wholeness, the lack of peace that should characterize the world. Instead of things being integrated and working like they should, they are broken. So we need pieces, that wholeness that we need within ourselves, that we need with others. But third, it's the wholeness that we need with God. Now this is often the most easily overlooked aspect of the meaning of peace. Why? Because it's easy for us to feel brokenness within ourselves. Right? It's, you, you know when you're overcome by anxiety, right? You know when you have 
the, the cracks of anger in your heart uh, or, or, this, uh, or a feeling of resentment or, or injustice. You know that so easily. And you know what it feels like to be at odds with another person. You know when you, that shalom, that wholeness that should exist between you and your relationships, you know when that's broken too. But we so often overlook or, or dismiss the idea that there is this fundamental brokenness between us and God. And we must see that underneath the conflict that we feel in ourselves, and even underneath the conflict that we've experienced with other people, is this lack of peace with God. And that's why in the book of Colossians, Paul writes that we have been alienated from God. In fact, I want you to turn there, if you have your Bible, to Colossians chapter 1. You're in Jeremiah chapter 29, and because I'm doing an expository or a topical exposition, I'm going to be going to different passages, but I want you to see in black and white words the, the biblical teaching of the brokenness of our relationship with God. We encountered these words uh, several weeks ago in our series, the book of Colossians. If you're using a pew Bible, it's the black book nearby you. You'll find Colossians 1 on page 983. And verse 21, Paul is speaking of chapter 1. Paul is speaking to the people in the church of Colossae. And he tells them that they were once, here are the words, alienated and hostile in mind. That speaks of the shalom that should be there being fractured or broken between them and God, alienated and hostile. Now, how did that alienation, how did the hostility come about? How did the brokenness of that shalom happen? Well, here it is in verse 21. Doing evil deeds. It is the sin that creates a fracture in the wholeness that we should be experiencing between us and God. Our that our inner lack of peace and our relational lack of peace has this one explanation, that underlying all this, people are naturally in conflict with God himself. And so it is peace with God that we need. So what is peace? Peace is the wholeness that is first and foremost found in a right relationship with God. That is the foundation of all peace. Because there can be no inner peace and there can be no outer peace unless first of all there is peace between us and God. That shalom, that wholeness is possible only in a right relationship with God. So peace, what is it? It's that wholeness found in a right relationship with God. And that raises the question then, where does peace come from? If it is true that naturally we are alienated from God, like enemies with God, there's, this, there's these fractures in our relationship with God, then how is this peace going to come? Another way to put this is this. Since sin is the destroyer of peace, since sin is the divide in our relationship, since sin is the thing that fractures us, not only within ourselves, but in our relationship with other people and in our relationship with God, the question is, how can sin be taken care of? What's the solution to sin? Well, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Christ, prophesied the birth of a child And here's how he described him. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Here it is, Prince of Peace. 
So way back in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, prophets were saying, particularly Isaiah, there's going to be this ruler, he's going to be born, and he's going to be called the Prince of Shalom. The ruler that brings things together that have been separated. The bringer of wholeness and completeness. The Prince of Shalom. And 700 years later, when Jesus was born, announcing his birth, were this company of angels, and they sang this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the, the foretelling of Jesus' coming and the announcement of his birth are both greeted and announced by language of peace. He's going to be the Prince of Peace, and when he comes, there's this announcement of peace. So how does Jesus bring peace? How does Jesus do what seems like is the impossible? And that is to bring these two warring parties into a right relationship. How does he do it? He does it by taking care of the problem of sin. Because like we said earlier, it is sin that's the fracture. It's sin that's the brokenness. It's sin that fragments and tears things apart, good things apart that should be together. And now Jesus is the one who takes care of sin. And here's how Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brings shalom and wholeness. He walks upon this earth as the very person who embodies peace. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. He himself walked in perfect peace and harmony with God. He embodied shalom, and yet at the end of his life, Jesus himself was treated as if he were the unjust one. Jesus, who never did anything wrong, was crucified as if he was the one that brought injustice to the world. Here's what's going on. Jesus, the very Prince of Peace, was giving up his peace to bring peace to us. Jesus, who never did anything unjust. Remember I said that there is where injustice is, there can be no peace. Jesus, who did no, nothing unjust. He, everything he did was pleasing to God, was treated as if he were unjust. Jesus gives up his shalom with God to offer us peace with God. And in this ultimate cry of separation, you remember what Jesus cried out at the cross? He said this, My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? That is not a cry of peace. That's a cry of brokenness. And yet this is a cry that's coming from the lips of the Prince of Peace. What's going on here? Jesus is being broken for us. Jesus is offering his peace with God to those of us who have been separated from God. The question that we're asking here is, okay, we saw what peace is. Peace is the wholeness that comes only through a right relationship with God. Where does it come from? It comes only from Jesus, the Prince of Peace who brings us into a right relationship with God. That's where peace comes from. Jesus took the punishment for sin so that those who believe him can, in him can be at peace with God. Here's another verse I want you to turn to. And this is 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 942. I want you to see it because this is so stunning when you realize the fact that we have been at odds with God and that Jesus, as the very Prince of Peace, is the one who brings us into a right relationship with God. It makes so much sense why the Apostle Paul, in unfolding the richness of the Christian faith, writes these words in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is declared, to be right by faith. In other words, those who receive by faith the fact that God has declared them righteous, we have what? Peace with God through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bringer of peace. There is no peace apart from him. Why? Because there is no solution to the problem of sin apart from him. Jesus is the one who brings the shattered fragments of your life and the shattered fragments of us as humans who have separated ourselves from God into that wholeness that is the peace that we need. That is why he is the Prince of Peace. That is why the prophet Isaiah not only called him the Prince of Peace, but also later on said the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. That's what Jesus did. What is peace? It's the wholeness that comes only through a right relationship with God. So where does it come from? It comes from Jesus and what he did on the cross. And that means that your peace, my friends, will be found only in one place. And that is you put your trust in Jesus. True peace, true wholeness in a right relationship with God coming through what Jesus has done to bring that wholeness, that shalom with God. You can have peace no other way. You can try to mask your anxiety. You can try to somehow hide your brokenness. You can somehow try to pursue other things to make it seem like you're a complete person. And yet there is no masking the fact that we are enmity with God and that we need a Savior to bring us into a right relationship with Him. That is the only way. It only comes through faith in Jesus. So the next question is this. So I said, what is peace? Where does it come from? It comes from Jesus and we access it by faith in Christ. And the third question is this, how do we seek peace? And by seek peace, I don't mean how do we achieve peace because peace is not something that we can achieve. It's only something that we can receive. The question is, how do we show peace to others? And here's what we need to understand is that since peace with God is the foundation of all other peace, we don't gain peace by striving for it, but by drawing from the peace that we have with God already. Like, if we were trying to achieve peace as a church, say unity and harmony and peace as a church, but individual, each, individually, each one of us were fractured by all pro kinds of problems, how could there be peace among us? If we're trying to achieve peace and harmony as a city, and yet there's all these warring, factioning groups within the city, how, how can peace possibly be achieved? Right. We, we don't work toward or for a peace with God. It's from a peace with God that we work. And we need peace in three areas. First of all, 
personal peace, personal peace. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 through 7, Paul writes this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Listen to this. Paul is saying, eliminate anxiety. We experience that so often. Instead, replace it with prayer, and that prayer should be infused with thanksgiving, and direct that prayer and thanksgiving to God. And when you do that, not by striving to get peace, not by thinking, how can I achieve this peace? No, no. It's by directing your attention to God, thanking God for what he's given to you, and here's what's going to happen when you do that. It says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is the peace of God that does the guarding. We need personal peace. How does the peace of God come? You cannot have the peace of God unless you have peace with God. You're going to have this sort of calm assurance that says, I know who my God is, and I know that he's going to take care of me. I know that I can commit everything into his hands unless you know that your relationship with him is right. It is the peace of God that flows from the peace with God. And as you do that, as you take all the problems in your life, all your fragmented, disordered, chaotic life, and you, and you offer it up in prayer to God, thanking him for what you've given him, the peace of God will guard you in a way that just boggles the mind. I shouldn't have peace in circumstances like this. I shouldn't have peace when things seem to be so out of control, and yet it is a supernatural, mind-surpassing peace that God gives to those who have peace with him. Personal peace. But also there's relational peace. Because God is a God of peace, those who are at peace with God should seek to be at peace with others. This is foundational to who we are as Christians. Those who have experienced the, the astonishing reconciliation between us and God that shouldn't have happened because we're God's enemies and yet Christ brings us together by taking care of the problem of our sin. Those of us who have experienced peace with God want to show that peace to other people. From the lives of those who have been brought into a peaceful relationship with God should overflow peace to others. That's exactly why in the New Testament there are so many uh, exhortations for us to be at peace with other people. And I'll read some of these to you. This is Jesus saying this in Mark chapter 9 verse 50. He says this, be at peace with one another. Paul writes near the end of the book of Romans, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, near the end of that letter, Paul writes this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. We have this verse written out one of the banners here, right outside the Fellowship Paul. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of peace and love will be with you. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Be eager, he's writing to Christians here, who are members of a church, part of a church, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And again in Romans chapter 14, Paul writes, strive for peace with everyone. And again, this is not a peace that we could just create or manufacture. It's only a peace that can flow out of a right relationship with God. That's the foundation of all this. There's personal peace, there's relational peace, and there's also public peace. And, and this is just really an extension of relational peace, but it's, it's a peace to others. It's the sense of wholeness or shalom, and it takes us back to that verse that we started with in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, that we are to seek the, the peace, the wholeness of the city. 
Not just in the sense of absence of conflict, but in the sense of wellness or welfare or, or completeness. And so back to the original question, as Christians, and I'm speaking to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, we, do ocu- we are citizens of two cities. We're citizens primarily of the city that is to come, and meanwhile we're, cit- we're citizens of this city. What does that mean for us then? It means that we are to do as much good as we possibly can for this city while we can. That's what it means to seek the wellness, the shalom of the city. You know when Jeremiah told the the exiles there in Babylon uh, to seek the peace of the city, what he told them to do was some pretty ordinary things. He said, get married. That's, that's That's a normal thing people do. Have children, build houses, plant gardens. And yet they were to do these ordinary things in an extraordinary way. And that's the, the same thing that Christians are called to do. We're called to do very ordinary things, but in an extraordinary way. You know, husbands are called to, to love their wives, have, have, have marriages, but what an extraordinary marriage that would be. Children to honor their parents. Employees to, to work diligently for their employers, not just when the boss is around, not when, just when no one is looking, but because they're serving the Lord Christ. Why does a Christian worker do his very best? Oh, because he's actually serving a master that's in heaven. It's because of his heavenly citizenship, not just because of his earthly citizenship. See, having our citizenship in heaven means that we do some, some ordinary things, things that people normally do, but we do them in a radically different way. It also means prioritizing our heavenly citizenship. Setting our hopes and dreams, not in this world, but in the one to come. It also means doing the most good that we can so that people will say this when they see us and our, and our good works. Like Jesus said, let your good works shine so that people may see them and glorify your Father in heaven. We want people to see what we do and say, we want to meet your Prince of Peace. We want to know who this is you serve. And we do this not out of a sense of guilt, not out of a sense of pride, because if we did it out of guilt or pride, that would just actually rip apart what we're trying to build up. We do it from the peace that we have with God. This is what God has called us to do. What motivates Christian peace-seeking, peacemaking is neither guilt nor pride, but this simple fact. God has so changed my relationship. He's so flooded my heart with grace. He's so reconciled me with him through Jesus Christ. I want to show that peace to other people. That peace that only comes from trusting in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace.